Right, if I got you turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 3 today. Acts chapter 3. I would like to give a message here dealing with the topic of salvation. Peter addresses individuals here that were going the wrong direction. And he tells them what they need to do. And that is ultimately found in Acts chapter 3 in verse 19. Let me go ahead and I will read that verse to start with. But this is where we are getting to. So Acts chapter 3 and verse 19, Peter says, Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Peter was concerned about their spiritual condition. We too should be concerned of others' spiritual condition. So let's go ahead and pray and ask the Lord's blessing upon this time. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity for us to come here today to consider the truths of your words. Father, the passage that we have before us in Acts chapter 3 is consistent with other times that individuals are told that they need to deal with their sins and turn in faith to you. Heavenly Father, we're thankful so much for what your Son has done, how he obediently came down, became flesh, lived the perfect, sinless life, obediently went to the cross, died for our sins, after taking all of our sins upon him, putting them into the grave, burying them, and then three days later, rising victoriously, demonstrating that the victory over death, over sin, has been provided, and that we have the ability to live for you. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we can to put the truths here today, that we'd have clarity in what Peter is explaining and was required. Father, if there are individuals here today that struggle with this concept, maybe they themselves have not been saved. Father, I pray that today would be an opportunity for them to consider the truths that we have here and respond appropriately. I pray your word to go forth with clarity, and I pray all this in Yeshua's name. Amen. In Acts chapter 3, we read of Peter and John going to the temple to participate in the evening of in the hour of prayer. Let me go ahead and read the, uh, the passage starting in verse 1, going all the way to verse 21. It says, Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. And a certain man lame from his mother's womb was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple. Who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked in alms. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look upon us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they knew that it was he who which, which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with, with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. And as the lame man which was healed held Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them in, in the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering. And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us, as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? The God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up, and denied him in the presence of Pilate, when he was determined to let him go. But ye denied the Holy One, and the just, and desired a murderer to be granted unto you, and killed the prince of life, whom God hath raised up from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. In his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong, whom ye see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of ye all. And now, brethren, I want that through ignorance ye did it, as did also your, also your rulers. But those things which God before had shown by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ should suffer, suffer he has so fulfilled. 
Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And ye shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. And so here we see, it's a long account that I just read, but it provides the background of what Peter is trying to get across to his hearers after laying out what they had done, how they had rejected the Messiah. It wasn't too late for them. They hadn't been cast away in a position where they could not receive reconciliation with God. What they had to do was very simple. They had faith available to them to believe in what the Messiah had done, but they needed to do something first connected to that faith. And that was what it says here in verse 19. Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. And so, so Peter and John were going to the temple setting the stage for this, as they come across this man begging for money because he was lame, unable to walk from birth. This lame man apparently had a habit of begging from the gate in the temple area, which was called Beautiful. We know from the passage that he had begged the temple for a long time because the people knew him and they knew of his disability. Because after he was healed, all the people were completely dumbfounded. They were in amazement. They wondered at this. And so they recognized the power of what was going on here. And so we see here in verse 10, it says, And they knew that it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. And so, so they realize a great power has happened here. Something from God has been manifested before them. Peter in his sermon also tells us something about this man, that this man had faith in Christ. This is very clear. This man that sat, sat there at the gate beautiful was a believer. So take a look at verse 16. It says, as Peter recounts this, it says that his name through faith in his name hath made this man strong, whom ye see and know, yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. So this man here had faith, and that was the basis for why Peter was able and John were able to heal him. So thus Peter did not tell the man or not heal the man as a way to draw a crowd. That wasn't the purpose here. But he healed the man, demonstrating the grace from God upon one of his servants. However, Peter took advantage of the crowd and gathered and preached unto them. He pulled them into the temple. They continued on to go into the temple. So Peter says in verse 12, Don't marvel at the miracles of those that are God's vehicles for the, the miracle. So again, verse 12, it says here, it says, when Peter saw it, he answered to the people, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why look ye so earnestly upon us, as though by our own power or holiness we have made this man to walk? They are just vehicles, is what he says. They are just God's instruments for bringing this across. And he says, instead, focus on the all-holy God that performed the miracle. This is what he says here in verse 13. He says, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom he delivered up, and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. Focus on him, Peter says. Don't focus on us. Focus on him. He's the one that you should marvel at. He's the one you should have awe with. And of course, what he is implying is that if one puts God in his proper place, if you properly identify where God belongs, one will then put themselves in their own proper place, worshiping and glorifying him. If you properly recognize who God is, you will worship him. Not his messengers, not his servants, but him. And if one truly glorifies the Father, he will glorify his Son, whom the Father has glorified. So Peter is linking the Father and the Son. One either receives them together or rejects them together. And that's part of the message that he is trying to tell to these Jews, because they were, they were and they had rejected the Son. And so the Jews had delivered Christ to be put to death. They denied him. They chose a murderer, one who takes life over the author of life. So thus, when the Jews rejected Christ, they rejected what the Father had approved and have denied or rejected the Father in, his, in, the, in, the, in the place of their actions. And so Peter, as he preaches salvation, starts with the identification of who Jesus is, who Yeshua is, and that is that he is the Son of God. 
That's what it says here in verse 13. It says that his son, Jesus, he is the son of God. In verse 14, he also properly identifies and helps his hearers understand. He calls him the Holy One, the just, in verse 14. But ye do not the Holy One and the just. This is who the Messiah is. Salvation starts with the proper identification of who is God. Also, he clarified in verse 15. He says, and killed the Prince of Life, whom God has raised from the dead. So he is the Prince of Life. Yeshua is the Prince of Life, but also, as he says in verse 15, he is the resurrected one. He's not the dead one, he's the living one. So all this is understanding who is God. Who is it that one needs to place their faith and trust in? As well, in verse 18, you go down to that verse. It says, But those things which God hath shown by the mouth of all his prophets, that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. In other words, what he's saying is that he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the one chosen from the beginning as being the one foretold by God, this is the one I was going to send. He should have recognized him. And so when you, recognize, when you properly identify God as being the Savior, you will realize he's the one that's spoken of in the Old Testament. He's the one spoken of and prophesied of as coming to save mankind. He is our salvation. Yeshua means salvation. He's the salvation of the Old Testament that was, that was pointed towards. But also, well, in verse 19, it says, Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. So there's another thing he's actually mentioned in, you know, connected here, and that is that he is Lord. And, and typically we call him Jesus Christ the Lord. Why? Because he is Lord. He has headship. He has authority. And then I also read all the way down through verse 22, another title is also given. So the realize all the things that Peter is saying about who you're supposed to place your faith in. He says, For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. So this Messiah was also to be a prophet, the prophet, the ultimate prophet. So all these things that Peter runs through, this is the object of one's faith. This is what an individual turns to. When we're talking about salvation and understanding and believing in the person and the work of the Messiah. This is what Peter lays out here. He's the Holy One, the Just One, the Prince of Life, the Resurrected One, the Anointed One, the Lord, the Prophet. These are what you put, this is the person you're putting your faith and trust into. In verse 16, Peter tells them their faith needs to be directed to the Son. They need to trust in what he has done on their behalf. True strength, true life, true salvation comes from, comes through faith in the one who the Father has glorified. If, if any person says that they have salvation, and it's not in the person described right here in, in Acts chapter 3, it's not salvation faith. Because only the man described here, the man Jesus Christ, man, man Yeshua the Messiah, is the one that has the ability to save. If it's in anything else, salvation is not found. There's only one name in, under heaven. That salvation is found. That's the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, excuse me, Peter says here in verse 17 that he knows that they killed Jesus out of ignorance. He's not giving them an excuse, but is instead acknowledging that he knows that they would not have supported his killing had they truly believed he was God. There are certain things men do sinfully out of ignorance. But all of this was according to the plan of God. The Messiah had to suffer as was prophesied in Isaiah 52 and 53. I'm not going to turn there, but if you're looking for extra reading today, that's a great place to go to refresh yourself on what was prophesied and how the Messiah would come and would be the suffering servant. It was all prophesied. Now Peter then states in verse 19 that it is not enough to just know who Jesus is. It's not just enough to know who the Messiah is. And you do it to properly identify him. He just went through all that, the proper identification of who he is. But many people stop at this point. They just think it's about the object of your faith. The reality is that you just can't add Yeshua to the shelf of other gods in your life. The other things that may have been elevated in your life. It's not enough to just acknowledge what he has done for them, to have faith that Christ truly did all these things for them. That is true. 
But to truly receive Christ, to truly receive the Messiah, rather than deny him or reject him, is to turn to him while turning away from one's sin. And that's what Peter is teaching us in verse 19. He says, repent and be converted. Repent and be converted. He's not saying here you just need to know who the person is that has offered salvation. You need to repent and be converted. This is part of the salvation experience. It is what is included in believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ. This repentance and this conversion is connected to the faith in the name of the properly identified Savior. He's laid out who the Savior is, but he says, repent and be converted. Now, what I want to do today is spend some time looking at this thing men are commanded to do, and that is to repent. Because there's less confusion over that. The Bible is clear that man must believe on the Messiah for salvation. And the Bible defines belief as repentant faith. We see both elements of it right here in this passage. We see the object of faith, but included here in verse 19 is this idea of repenting. And so what what does it mean that one needs to repent and to have faith? What does it mean to repent? Repentance means to have sorrow for one's sin and to turn from them or desire to turn from them while turning to God. So yes, you need to have the object of faith, but you need to turn to that object of faith while turning away from, desiring to turn from what is sinful, what has carried you down to cause you to be distant from God to cause you to offend God and put you on the path of deserving to go to hell. Many reject this truth today. Many reject it. Some want to say that repentance is not even part of salvation. If that were the case, what is Peter even doing talking about this right now? And we'll cover enough today that it's easy to see that statement as being false. Some try to redefine what repentance means. By replacing the biblical definition with a false one that says it's purely a change in mind that one is trusting in for salvation. So they're saying that what repentance means is that someone's trusting something else for salvation, like your good works or something like that. And that they just need to repent or turn from that idea to the idea of trusting in salvation through the Messiah. That can be part of it. But that's not what this word repentance is getting at. We'll, see, we'll also see biblical proof that this is also an incorrect idea from both what we refer to as the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. But first, let's just take a look at repentance in the passage here. So verse 19, Peter says, Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. So he says repent. The word repent is a Greek word metanao. And it appears 34 times in the New Testament, and it's always translated as repent. It means to feel remorse. It means to have a change in attitude about one's sin that produces change. And so this is a key distinction. Some people get mixed up on this a little bit. Because it's not about cleaning up your life. It's not about physically turning from your sins. It's about having a desire to turn from your sins. To, to recognize what sin is, be sorrowful for it, say, I don't want to do that anymore, and desire to turn from it. And when we have the desire, the volition to turn from it, God then enables us to turn physically from it. But it's a, it's a desire that actually produces results. And so if someone says, I've repented of my sins, and they're just constantly operating in those sins afterwards, the question becomes, well, what did you really repent of? The answer is nothing if you haven't really turned from anything. That's why the apostle, that's why the, um, excuse me, John the Baptist says, bring forth fruit, meat for repentance, qualified showing that you've actually repented. Now, one lexicon, famous word, fam- uh, just, a, just a, a fancy word for a Bible dictionary, it quotes, or, excuse me, it explains or defines repentance as to change one's way of life as a result of a complete change of thought and attitude with regard to sin and righteousness. To repent, to change one's way, or repentance. Another lexicon says, is used especially of those who, conscious of their sins and with manifest tokens of sorrow, are intent on obtaining God's pardon. 
to change one's mind for the better, heartily to amend with abhorrence of one's past sins. Conduct worthy of a heart changed and abhorring sin. So those are just those are two definitions in lexicons. But the best way to understand this meaning is to see how it's used. Let the Bible define the term. And so here Peter, he, can, he connects this word repentance with another word. You can see there in the verse that is converted. It says, repent ye therefore and be converted. The word and could be translated as the word even. And so repent ye therefore, even be converted. And I believe that's the, kind of the right way to understand the word and there. So you can understand the and as we're being additive or explanatory. And so repent ye therefore and be converted or, or even be converted. Now this word converted, it doesn't mean be regenerated, which some people wrongly connect this. It's kind of like you're saying repent and be regenerated. It's like, well, what can you do to be regenerated? So that doesn't make any sense, but the problem is that it follows into Christian lingo. And it's been, it's been kind of misused, I would say. But that's not what Peter's saying here. He's saying repent and be converted. When it says converted, it's the Greek word epistrepho. And it means to turn, and it can be used either physically to turn or figuratively. So, for, so it shows up 39 times and. 29 of those is translated as turn, return, turn about, or turn again. Six of those times is translated, like here, converted. So, for example, if you take a look at Mark chapter 8. So, like I said, the whole goal here is let's let the Bible define the terms. Because someone can go and they come across, this is very, very common, where individuals will say, repentance isn't part of salvation. Or repentance just means change your mind about how you're being saved. That's not what the Bible teaches. And so I need to spend some time on this because this is a big deal. If you can't understand what the gospel is, you're lacking the foundation for everything. And repentance is part of the gospel. So here we have this word used, converted. So we have an example in Mark 8.33 where Yeshua says this. It says, But when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. So notice in the very first part of that verse, it says the word turned. But when he had turned about, that's the word converted. So when he had converted about and looked upon his disciples. What this means is that Yeshua physically turned to look at his disciples. So you can see that this word here has the idea of turning here used in a physical sense. But there's a number of times that this is connected to the spiritual. Take a look at the same book here, Mark chapter 4. Go back a few chapters to Mark chapter 4. Take a look at verse 12. So again, this is more of a spiritual or a figurative use of this. Notice how it is used. Acts chapter 14, excuse me, Mark chapter 4 and verse 12. It says here, that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. So here you see it's translated the word converted. So it's connected to this idea of being turned. So what is Yeshua saying here? Well, he's saying that there is a connection of turning that precedes the idea of being forgiven for your sins. This is very important. Some people put repentance after salvation. That doesn't fit what's being said here in, in, in Mark chapter 4 and verse 12. Take a look as well. Take a look at Acts chapter 14. In Acts chapter 14, we see another example of this, an admonition for an individual to deal with, with their spiritual situation. Acts 14 and verse 15. It says here, and saying, Sirs, why do ye these things? We also are men of like passions with you, and preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein. So here we can see this idea of turning, that they should respond to the preaching and should turn from these vanities or emptiness unto the living God. So they were worshiping false gods. And so 
they weren't necessarily, one of the misnomers here is, is that the idea is you need to turn from idol worship and that somehow people are worshiping idols because they want to be saved by these idols. People that have idols in their life today, they're not worshiping these idols in their lives for salvation. I mean, people have idols of like sports in their life or their job in their life. They're not looking for salvation from sports. The reality is that they're spending time and elevating things in their life that God doesn't want them to. It doesn't mean there's no place for them, but they've elevated them to a position or they're not focusing on God. They've given God no attention. And so it is said here, you need to turn from these things, these emptiness, these empty things in life, and spend time focusing on things of God. And so here we have this, this, this turning. Take a look at Acts chapter 26. Another example. So this whole question is, what does Peter mean when he says, repent and be ye converted? Acts 26. Take a look at verse 20. It says here, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. Sounds like John the Baptist here. So notice again, we have this word repent and then we have this word turn to God. This word turn is the word translated as convert elsewhere. So this idea of repenting, even turning to God. So it's connected again with this idea of repenting. It helps. So these words are here to help explain what does this word repent mean. It's connected to this idea or this concept of turning. Turning from what? The answer is sins or other things that are getting in the way of, of, of an individual of, of getting right with God. One more place. Take a look at 1 Thessalonians chapter, not, chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 in verse 9. The argument is typically laid out that it, nowhere in the Bible at all does it even give the hint that repentance has the idea of turning from one's sins prior to salvation or as part of, this, of believing. Verse 9, 1 Thessalonians 1, it says, For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And so here we see it's connected to turning from idols as well. So thus here, Peter says that individuals need to repent and be converted or be turned. And turn from what? Well, just like Paul says, the Thessalonians turn from their idols. Just like Paul and Barnabas said, turn from passions and vanities. Just like, like Peter had said earlier, we need to, and Yeshua had said, turn from the things that, are, that, are, that, are, that you need to repent of. Turn from sins. Peter in Acts chapter 3, if you go back there, what is he dealing with here? Well, part of the sin that he's dealing with is how they killed the Messiah and how they rejected the Messiah. They put him to death and they embraced the murderer, Barabbas. And so what do they need to do? They need to repent and turn from their sins. Just like those that had preceded them that had rejected the prophets and the admonishment to turn from their sins, they need to turn from their sins as well. So Acts chapter 3 and verse 19. Repent ye therefore and be converted. So it's very clear here this idea of be converted or being turned has the idea of turning from something. But he goes on and he clarifies it further when he says that your sins may be blotted out. When the times of refreshing shall come. So it has the idea of sins being blotted out. This is connected to, to being converted, being turned. Blotted out means to wipe out. It means to erase. It means to remove. It means to obliterate. That's what the word blotted out means. In other words, they are gone. If you want your sins blotted out, if you want them gone, if you want them forgotten, or in biblical language, forgiven, well then you need to do what Peter says here. Repent and, there, and ye therefore and be converted. Have the right object of your faith, but turning to that faith, turning away from those things that are, caught, that are causing you to be going to hell. And so he says here that your sins may be blotted out so they can be forgiven. So the words in the context here help us understand that repentance has to do with turning from sin. Because what, what is he talking about here? He's talking about being converted or being turned 
from these sins. It is sins that need to be converted, turned from. He doesn't say repent therefore and be converted that you can just go to heaven. He says that your sins may be blotted out. This is all dealing with sins. It is sins that ends up being blotted. Sin no longer is being embraced, but rather abhorred, looked down upon. You see, there are many that want to say that repentance is only about changing one's mind and how they're saved. No, here the context demands that it is sin that is being repented of. Not just a change in mind. And this is further proved by the very last things that Peter says in his message. Let me read to you the rest of the chapter here. It says, For Moses, verse 22, truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. Ye are the children of the prophets, and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindred of the earth be blessed. See, we're talking about faith here, in the context of repentance. But notice the last verse here. Unto you first, God having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you, and turning away every one of you from his iniquities. You see, here what Peter is preaching is that the Messiah came to turn you away from your sins. And to turn unto what? Turn them unto the Messiah. He says why John the Baptist was there to start with, is he was there to pave the way for the Messiah. Because the people can't receive the Messiah if they're still embracing their sins over here. He says, you need to turn from those, repent of your sins, be baptized as demonstration that you've actually done this. And when the Messiah comes, You'll be, you're returning to him. You're looking for him already. You will be prepared. And so he says here in verse 26 again, Unto you first God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. How many people would say that? That God, is ble God blesses his people by turning them away from their sins. Many people say we've been blessed because God just covers all of our sins. And therefore I can do whatever I want to. No, we are blessed when we're turned from our sins. You enter into blessing when you've turned or repented from your sins and turned in faith to the Messiah. You see here how Peter, if you look at the words and what's being used here in the context, it's very clear that the verse 19, repent, and be, repent ye therefore and be converted, he's talking about the same thing as verse 26, turning away every one of you from his iniquities. It's the iniquities that are blotted out in verse 19, they're called sins, that the sins may be blotted out. And so Yeshua was sent to bless mankind by turning them away, everyone, from his iniquities. Repent and be converted in verse 19 is clarified by verse 26. And so repentance means turning from sin, desiring to get away from that which separated you for you from God. Now notice how Peter shows this turning from sin points to a specific time in the future. Verse 19, let me read a little bit more here. It says, Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. At first you might be like, well, what is this doing here? What does this have to do with anything? Well, and first question might be, what is this even referring to? Well, we read on to verse 20 and 21, it clarifies. It says, And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. What is this dealing with? This is connected to when the Messiah will come again. In verse 19, when it says, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord, it's connected to his second coming, when his people will be resurrected and their bodies will be free from the flesh that desires to sin. This is what Amos talks about in Amos chapter 9. If you want to go back there, the minor prophets. So Amos chapter 9. So you found Ezekiel, go forward about three books to Amos. Amos chapter 9, look at verse 13. The last three verses of the, of the book here. 
He says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him that sows seed. And the mountains shall drop sweet wine, and all the hills shall melt. And I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel. And they shall build the waste cities, and inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards, and drink the wine thereof. They shall, they shall also make gardens, and eat the fruit of them. And I will plant them upon their land, and they shall no more be pulled up out of their land, which I have given them, saith the Lord thy God. God says his people Israel will, will reestablish the land. The land doesn't go away. God's people doesn't go away. They will be coming back. Amos chapter 9 is referring to the, to the nation of Israel, and he says they will reestablish themselves in the land, and they'll never be removed again. The psalm we read today, a meditation, Psalm 87, hints at that as well, by the way. The glory, the exaltation of God's Mount Zion. And so this is that time of refreshing, when it's all reestablished again. So there's a time when our hope becomes reality. This is the time when sin is no longer tolerated. And the righteousness of the Messiah is the law of the land. But in order for one to be able to enter into this time, they have to have their sins blotted out. They have to have their sins forgiven. That's what Peter is saying here in Acts 3.19. Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Only those individuals that have salvation will be able to experience what is being discussed here. They need to have their sins blotted out or, or forgiven. They need to repent and be converted. They need to be sorry for their sins and turn from them. Turning in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Yeshua Messiah, who is the just one, who is the holy one. But mind you, think that this idea of repentance is something only found here. God and his prophets have been preaching it all along in the Old Testament. This has been the message. Take a look at Job chapter 42. Job chapter 42. In the middle of your Bible, the Psalms go one book earlier to Job. Job 42. We find here in Job 42 that repentance includes sorrow for sin. The Bible defines these words. It defines what all this stuff means. Job 42 and verse 6. He says, Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. We can see here the reference to dust and ashes is connected to repentance. In other places we read of wearing sackcloth. This was in a way of externally showing one's internal sorrow. Job says here, Wherefore I pour myself and repent in dust and ashes. Repentance includes a sorrow. Take, but, but repentance also clearly refers to turning from one's sins. Take a look at Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah 55. So after, after Psalms and Proverbs, look at Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55 and verse 6. So many individuals are confused thinking the Old Testament preaches a different gospel. It doesn't. Isaiah 55 and verse 6. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God for he will abundantly pardon and so here we see the idea of forsaking his way. And the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord. So this idea of repenting and so turning from one's wicked paths and turning back to what God has always laid out to be, this is truth, this is righteousness, this is who I want you to focus on, and that is me, the Lord. So it sounds like what David wrote about that we focused on the last couple of weeks in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. Isaiah 55 sounds exactly like that. Take a look at Jeremiah 36. Go forward a book here. Jeremiah 36. Take a look at verse 3 of the chapter. Jeremiah 36 and verse 3. What we have here is, It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the evil which I purpose to do unto them, 
but that they may return every man from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. So here you see this idea of individuals turning from their sin and forgiveness following. So notice the condition here. Repentance precedes forgiveness. If one desires forgiveness, one must repent of their sins. Does it mean that they need to identify every single one of their sins in their life? No. But when a person is confronted with the reality they're a sinner, there are sins that come to mind. And those sins should not be held on to. If there's a reservation about those sins, there's a problem with the desire to really truly turn from them. A person will say, okay, I've done this. I don't like that. God says it's wrong. I shouldn't have done that. God, I'm sorry I did that. I want to turn from that. I don't want to do that anymore. I want to find your paths. You provide the solution for my sin to be covered. Thank you for doing that. Show me your ways. I want to walk in your ways, not walk in those ways. That's what repentance is. It's calling to mind and dealing with those sins that you know you've done. Take a look at Ezekiel chapter 14. Go forward a couple more books. Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel chapter 14. Ezekiel 14 and verse 6. Therefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, Repent and turn yourselves from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations. So here's your clarity. It's idols and also other things. So notice repentance includes turning from abominations. Abominations are things that offend God. In other words, sin. Abomination is the same word used to describe sodomy. It's the same word used to describe false weights. It's the same word used to describe unclean foods. Something that's been an abomination has always been an abomination and always will be an abomination. God does not change his mind what sin is. Ezekiel 18. Take a look at verse 21. Do a Bible study on that word abominations and you'll come to that conclusion. Ezekiel 18 and verse 21. But if the wicked will turn from all his sin that he hath committed and keep all my statutes and do that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. You see, you're turning from your wicked ways and turning to God's ways. And by the way, God's way starts with believing upon the Messiah. When you do that, he paves the path. You follow the example that he's laid out. Ezekiel 18 and verse 27. We spent some time going through this passage a while back. Ezekiel 18 and verse 27. Again, when the wicked man turneth away from his wickedness that he hath committed, and doeth that which is lawful and right, he shall save his soul alive. Because, why? Because he considereth and turneth away from all his transgressions that he hath committed. He shall surely live, he shall not die. You see, it's not about just cleaning up your life. What it's about is desiring to turn from your sins. And when you turn from your sins, you're turning from wickedness and turning to something right. It's the Messiah. He is the Word. It is His commandments that we're looking to follow. It is He that is the Lord. Lord over what? What He has decreed. Take a look at, at Jonah. One, one more place here in the Old Testament. Take a look at Jonah. In chapter 3. Let's see if you found Amos before. Go forward two more books to Jonah. And this is important to read because if anything connects us to the New Testament, this passage does. Jonah chapter 3. Take a look at verse 5. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. For word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him and covered him with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout, through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent? and turn away from his fierce anger, that we perish not. 
and God saw their works that they turned from their evil ways, and God repented of, of, his, of the evil that he had said he had, would do unto them, and he did it not. So here we see that the individuals in Nineveh were confronted with their sin, their wickedness, their evil ways as mentioned here. What did they do? They put on sackcloth. They, 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 they demonstrated that they were sorrowful for their sin, and they desired to turn from it. The decree went out and said, turn away from your sins. And maybe if we turn from our sins and stop doing them, have a desire that maybe God will change his ways. And so it says here at the end, some people say, well, repentance can't mean turning from sin because God doesn't repent from sin. Well, it says here in verse 10 that it says God, might, he might repent, and it says he does repent. Well, what does it mean, repent? It means turn. God doesn't repent from sin. He changes direction based on the direction of man. When man chooses to oppose God, well, God opposes man. And God says, I'm going to judge you for that sin. When man turns from his wickedness, being confronted with sin, God then says, I will have mercy upon that man, faithful to my word, and I will change and not carry out judgment on that person. I will be right with that person and bless them. I will have grace upon them. So you see, God doesn't change just willy-nilly. God changes after man changes. It's conditioned. God doesn't have unconditional love. That is a huge, huge lie. God does not just love anybody and everything. God loves those that love him. Those that repent of their sins and turn towards him. Does that mean that that validates what God said, that what Paul says in Romans? That, that, uh, God loved man first, and having his Savior, having Jesus Christ be the Savior? No, that doesn't negate that. It means that God paved the way for man to turn to him. God provided the solution. But if a man refuses to turn from his ways and stay in his wickedness, God does not unconditionally love him. It's very clear here. And so when we get to the New Testament, same thing. Notice what we find here in Matthew chapter 12. Notice what the Messiah says about this very event in Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12 and verse 41. He says, The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. Condemn what? This generation. Because they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. The Messiah says that Nineveh repented at Jonah's preaching. He says, I'm greater than Jonah. Why are you not responding to my preaching? I'm preaching the same thing Jonah preached. They repented. They changed. You're not changing. They're going to raise up, and they're going to be a testimony against you to say, what in the world were you thinking? Don't say that you didn't have a good enough prophet preaching to you. We had Jonah. You are the Messiah. And so you see here, the message of the Old Testament is the same as the message of the New Testament. The Messiah is preaching the same thing. It's because Jonah was preaching his message. So Yeshua connects what he does here. Notice this is important. He uses the word repented. This is the word that people say. It only means change of mind about what you believe is what your salvation comes from. Yeshua connects this Greek word to the Old Testament word dealing with sorrow and turning from one's sin. The Bible defines the words very clearly. You can't get around that. It's clear what repentance means if we let the Bible define the word. But repentance is found all over the New Testament. Take a look at Matthew chapter 3. The same book here. Take a look at Matthew chapter 3. Over and over again, this was the message. We have John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3. Notice what he says in, in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 2. Verse 1 for, for the context here. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He didn't say, well, just accept Jesus into your heart and you're going to go to heaven. That's not what he says. He says, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. What did the Messiah preach when he came on the scene? Take a look at Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17. The Messiah's message was the same as John the Baptist. 
Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so Christ says that repentance is part of the gospel. Take a look at Matthew, excuse me, Mark chapter 1. It's very clear that this is part of the gospel. Mark chapter 1. In case maybe you're saying, well, maybe he's not preaching the gospel here. Mark chapter 1. Mark clarifies. Take a look at verse 14 and 15. And after John was put into prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Repentance is part of the gospel. Very clear. While we're in Mark here, continue on, take a look at Mark chapter 6. The disciples preached the same message. Mark chapter 6, take a look at verse 12. We find here, it says, And they went out and preached that men should repent. Very clear. John the Baptist preached repentance. Yeshua preached repentance. The disciples being sent out preached repentance. Each, each individual in hell also recognizes they're in hell because they refuse to repent. Take a look at, at, the, at the Gospel of Luke. We have here, in the account of rich man Lazarus, the same concept exists here. In Luke chapter 16, taking a look almost at the end of the chapter here in verse 30. It says, And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And of course, Abraham responds here, and he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. See, it all comes down to believing the scriptures and being confronted by your sin by the scriptures and then repenting and turning based on that conviction. And so the rich man here says, Send someone up from this hell so that they may be able to repent. And so we see here this consistent message. Like the Old Testament, repentance is in the New Testament. And it's not just about, it's not just about turning from one's sin, but also having remorse for one's sin. And so, again, this is all connected. Take a look at Matthew chapter 11. So it's not just turning or desiring to turn from your sin, it's also not liking your sin. It's also being sorrow for your sin. So this idea of repentance is sorrow and desiring to turn from it, not wanting to do it anymore. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 21 shows us sorrow as well, similar to what we had read in Matthew 12. It says, Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. You see, this is a way of repenting. It's connected to sorrow. Take a look again in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We were here when we were dealing with 2 Samuel earlier. As a preacher before us used to say, let's just check to make sure it's still in the Bible. And lo and behold, it is. But the reality is, is that these things should be able to roll off our tongues. Where do we find these things? 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10. It says, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Repentance includes sorrow. A right understanding of what sin is, how it's offended God, how it has put you in the, in the position of going to hell, and how you need to turn from that. But it includes recognizing, saying, I don't like this. I, I'm sorry I did this. It's also very clear that repentance produces fruit. That it is a desire to turn that produces change. One does not physically turn from their sin prior to salvation, but after salvation. The turning in salvation is a change in attitude. It's a change in volition that will manifest itself in fruit afterwards. We find this, for example, in Matthew chapter 3. I referred to this earlier with John the Baptist. Let's take a look at his exact words here. Matthew chapter 3, when the Pharisees come to participate, to investigate and possibly participate in this, in this baptism that John was doing. Take a look at Matthew chapter 3 in verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said to them, O generation of vipers! 
Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth, therefore, fruits, meat for repentance. The word meat has has the understanding of qualification. So bring forth, therefore, fruits qualified or showing that you've repented. Show me that you've repented. He's not trying to say that when you repent immediately that, 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 that is the change itself. But if a person truly has repented, there will be fruit that follows. And if you follow on what is taught here and in the parallel passages, you see what is going on here. These, that he says, if this is what you are, this is what you'll have done. You'll, you'll turn from those wickednesses. We also take a look at Matthew 7, and we see this very concept, that fruit is an evidence that there's been a change that has taken place. Matthew 7, in verse 16. Matthew 7, in verse 16. He says, You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. And he goes on to clarify, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. You see, individuals that have repented have a changed life that follows. The life of a believer is the life of one that follows after what God has instructed in his word. And so as we saw in our passage in Acts chapter 3, repentance leads to blotting out of sins. Without repentance, a man will perish. This is, what, this, is, this is a very key point that people need to understand. It's why the Messiah said such a thing. Take a look at Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. We're bringing this down to a close here as we finish up defining and showing what the Bible says about repentance. Because it is the linchpin connected to belief, part of belief itself. Luke chapter 13 and verse 3. It says, I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Luke 13, 3, very clear. And he says that other times in that passage. Repentance or lack of repentance is connected to the concept of perishing, which takes you right back to John 3, 16. In 2 Peter 3, 9, we'll take a look at that passage here. Similar type of idea. We looked at this last time as well. 2 Peter chapter 3. We find here, 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slack concerning this promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I really struggle with how individuals can come to the conclusion that repentance is not important, that repentance is not turning from one's sins, and being sorrowful for them, and desire to turn to the solution of the Messiah. Repentance is part of what God wants man to do. It's, just, it's, it's, it's struggling to hear people say these sort of things because the Bible is very clear on this topic. It's not, it's not, a, it's not a, 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 a comforting thing to tell someone. They need to deal with their sins. But that's the reality what God says needs to happen. And so if this is the case, we need to preach repentance. If we don't include repentance in the message then we're not preaching the true gospel. Take a look at Luke chapter 24. It's the last verse we'll look at here today. Luke 24. Luke 24 and verse 46. And he said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning in Jerusalem. This is what the Messiah tells us to do. We need to preach repentance and remission of sins. So repentance provides remission or forgiveness, pardoning of sins. So Luke 24, 46 through 47, it's very clear that we are supposed to preach repentance. That's what we're doing here today, is we're preaching repentance. It's part of the gospel message. If you walk away here today and say repentance is not part of it, you're not looking at God's word. 
And so the question for everyone is, have you repented from your sins? If you have a salvation testimony that excludes repentance of sin, or you have a testimony after profession of salvation where there's no fruit showing that you've repented, according to the Bible, that is not a testimony of salvation. You need to test your salvation against this. Rather, if a person has not fruit, if they've not repented of their sins, they have a testimony of one that is perishing. That's a devastating position to be in. If you're here today and you haven't repented of your sins, if you don't have a salvation testimony, it includes repentance. Turning from your sins and turning to, in faith to the person and the work of the Messiah. As Peter said, repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Let's pray.